0: The myth that people like Bezos like to push forward is that the reason that they're billionaires is because they worked really hard and created, um, you know, created this set of ideas or created a a good that is actually worth that amount of money. But the truth is all of their wealth stands on, is, is an accumulation of lots of things pulled from lots of different places and that pulling is the wealth extraction that we're describing. So um, you know when you when you take uh, you know an, an, a, uh, a a set of vulnerable workers um, like workers in Minneapolis who work at Amazon's facilities. You know these are black folks. These are some folks who are um, are black immigrants. When you take when you take that group of people and choose to not pay them a living wage for the area, to um, you know work them so hard that you know you have of stories of people um, using the bathroom on themselves in the workplace. You see all of that, that really is just extracting as much money as you can from those people um, to pad the company's profits, to pad Jeff Bezos's pockets um, at, their, at their expense. So... Yeah, I think the most important thing inside of the concept of wealth extraction for me, as you can probably hear in my the, the things that I've said, is intentionality. So this isn't just something that is, you know, when, when in economics, when you talk about surplus value, it's kind of an, an, an afterthought. It's something that just happened because of a small inefficiency somewhere, right? Like it didn't, some, some things didn't equal up. Um, Wealth extraction is an intentional process where there are communities that are targeted, and that's where the money is coming from. That's where the wealth, that's where the value is coming from.
1: Hey folks, this is Stephen Pitts, host of Black Work Talk, an organizing upgrade podcast. Here we take a look at efforts around the country to build the collective power of Black workers. Immediately following the end of World War II, workers engaged in a massive wave of strikes close to 5 million workers walked off their jobs, fighting for a range of demands from higher pay to union recognition. This was before the merger of the AFL and the CIO, and the labor movement's most vulnerable spot was the South, where the region's economic underdevelopment and its vicious racism resulted in low levels of unionization. In this context, the CIO launched Operation Dixie, This campaign attempted to organize large numbers of workers across the South in several industries. For a variety of reasons, this effort failed, not the least of which was anti-communist red-baiting by local officials, the AFL, and even some CIO organizers. I mention this because the South is still the weakest link in the labor movement, and this weakness has led to the continued electoral hegemony of the GOP and the rise of white nationalism. At the same time, progressive organizing in the South is on the rise, with the most recent manifestation being the election victories in Georgia. Union activity is also on the rise, and currently the nation's eyes are focused on Bessemer, Alabama, where workers in the recently opened Amazon warehouse expressed a desire to form a union. Success in Bessemer can go a long way to strengthening progressive forces in the South. Today's guest is Maurice BP Weeks. Maurice is co-founder of the Action Center on Race in the Economy, knows Acre. Acre sits at the nexus of the struggles for racial and economic justice. As such, they provide campaign assistance to local organizations and engage in national campaigns against corporate elites. Equally important, ACA shapes the national narrative around the role of corporate elites in the exploitation of communities of color. Last year, Maurice wrote a key article stating that Amazon was a key symbol of racial capitalism. Given the efforts of workers in Bessemer, Alabama, to form a union, Maurice's voice is an important one to hear on Black Work Talk. But I do want to remind you that we need your support. Here at Black Work Talk... We are committed to developing a vibrant conversation, bringing you the key voices building Black worker power in the workplace and in the neighborhood, bringing you the very best guests and most timely discussions Takes resources. We depend upon people power to grow, so please go to Patreon to make a financial contribution, small or large, and become part of our community to support the work we do here at Black Work Talk. Black Work Talk comes to you via Organizing Upgrade, an online space created to strengthen social movements. If you appreciate Black Work Talk, check out Organizing Upgrade's weekly live show, Frontline Dispatches. The show spotlights organizers and activists at ground zero of fights for racial and economic justice. Like Black Work Talk, it gives the mic to people with rules of insight, people who you might not hear otherwise. You can catch it on Wednesdays at seven p.m. Eastern, six PM Central, and four PM Pacific. Or anytime on Organizing Upgrades Facebook page. Sam Reese, man. Thanks for coming on. I appreciate it a lot, man.
0: Absolutely, absolutely. I've been I've been looking forward to this all week.
1: What's happened, in Detroit, man? Anything special?
0: Uh let's see. It just uh the weather just started to break. I think it's gonna be in the sixties this weekend. So I'm gonna get to do some outdoor gardening and stuff like that. Um so that's always a big deal in, in Detroit because you know we suffer with the we're not we're not like you Bay Area people we suffer with the winter for months and months and months so I'm Sounds happy good. for that. Yeah,
1: I'm good. We well, want to do more gardening, man. Come to my place, man. I try to do some plants. So feel free to come here and do my gardening for me, okay?
0: <laughs> yeah, once it once it opens back up, we'll we'll see. I know you're retired now, though, so I don't know if you could pay me, you know, because I, I I have a minimum wage here that I that I need for gardening work.
1: We can have a conversation at that point, okay? <laughs> but I really don't want to talk about a lot of stuff, man. Um, now you wrote a fasting article in the Forge. I think it was last year, sometime maybe June or July of last year, and the title was. Looking for a symbol of racial capitalism, looking for the Amazon. And that was a fascinating title and fascinating article as well. And particularly given all the discussion now around the voting taking place right now for the, the workers who are trying to join a union there. I want to kind of revisit that article and talk to you a bit, a bit about it, okay? Yeah. One thing that's fascinating is you know, a lot of the talk now about the, the whole question of unionization, they focus just on that, getting a union there. But in many ways, you brought you broad, broadened some other issues to brought them to the table. Now you, you said that Amazon is a symbol of racial capitalism. What do you mean by racial capitalism, man? Huh?
0: Yeah. So you know, I, I I take my my cues on um, on this framework from um, from history. So like you know, this is a Cedric Robinson concept of you know describing the ways that capitalism worked is being based on extraction from particular groups of people. So especially, I would say, this, this brand of kind of you know, short-term American capitalism that we're in right now, that we've been swimming in for you know, the past uh, 40, 60 years, uh, most especially, is, is based on this notion of wealth extraction from, from black and brown folks and indigenous folks in particular. So um, you know, when I when I say when we say Amazon is is the perfect example of that, you know, if you look about if you look at all the ways that Amazon is actually, you know, making their money um and how they're generating their value, you can kind of trace it all back to exploitation of particular communities of color. And that shows up in you know, where they build uh, different facilities and the environmental impact that it has on people of color that shows up in their workforce. You know, it's one of the most dangerous places in America to work and they're fiercely anti-union and they don't pay particularly well. And a lot of their warehouse workers are people of color. Um, Shows up in some of their, you know, the management of their warehouses. There've been stories about them Stopping Somali workers from praying during Ramadan because you know people are so tied to a, a particular schedule, and you know it ties to some of their uh, not front-facing business as well. So you know they they really have built up a surveillance infrastructure that um, law enforcement and policing really uses to surveil Black and Brown communities. So. You know, all of those all of those things kind of put together, um, you know, create creates, of course, a, a, a monopoly. I think that that the the notion of Amazon as a monopoly is being picked up more and more now. But it's important for folks to realize that it's not hitting everybody equally, and there's some there's some communities that it really is targeting. Um, and yeah, that's what we call a symbol of of racial capitalism in that way.
1: This may be an odd question. Um, let me see how it rolls out. So the whole idea of extraction. Um, Back when I was a kid, a couple days ago, um, we we talked about about Marx and surplus value. Okay, how does the idea of of extraction differ from this idea of surplus value?
0: Yeah, yeah. So the idea of of extraction is, you know, the 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 way that these. the way that companies may make their money, um, how they pitch it is that, the, or let's even take it to someone like Jeff Bezos, the way that his wealth and the wealth of his firm is being created is all through, the, the, through workers, through people who, um, who are actually running the warehouses, through uh, smaller businesses who are creating the products that he sells. And through my data, your data, and the data of everyone else on, on the face of, on the face of the earth, um, you know, the myth that people like Bezos like to push forward is that the reason that they're billionaires is because they worked really hard and created, um, you know, created this set of ideas or created a, a good that is actually worth that amount of money. But the truth is all of their wealth stands on, is, is an accumulation of lots of things pulled from lots of different places. And that pulling is the wealth extraction that we're describing. So, um, you know, when you, when you take, uh, you know, an, an a, uh, a, a set of vulnerable, workers, um, like workers in Minneapolis who work at Amazon's facilities, you know, these are black folks. These are some folks who are, um, are black immigrants. When you take, when you take that group of people and choose to not pay them a living wage for the area to, um, you know, work them so hard that, you know, you have, you have stories of people, um, using the bathroom on themselves in the workplace. When you do all of that. That really is just extracting as much money as you can from those people um, to pad the company's profits, to pad Jeff Bezos's pockets um, at their at their expense. So, yeah, I think the most important thing inside of the concept of wealth extraction for me, as you can probably hear in my the the things that I've said, is intentionality. So this isn't just something that is you know in, when in economics when you talk about surplus value. It's kind of an, an an afterthought. It's something that just happened because of a small inefficiency somewhere, right? Like it didn't some some things didn't equal up. Um, wealth extraction is an intentional process where there are communities that are targeted, and that's where the money is coming from. That's where the wealth. That's where the value is coming from. Um, so I think it differs in that way.
1: Okay. Yeah. You're not trying to over terms and, and sometimes you can't ta- teach an old dog do tricks by the way and, um, but I would th- I, w- I would have said that from, from my point of view what you expressed in terms of or the processes of extraction are very similar to what I would thought is just surplus value I thought that clearly it's a matter of intentionality that they simply are intentionally rolling out a certain way and they simply pay X and get paid 2x and the difference is the surplus value itself and, and I raised the question also because and I do want to get back to Amazon, by the way, so I'll, I'll get back in a second. It just yeah. It seems to me that if the idea of, of extraction is kind of center of all of our political economy, that means that all workers face their wealth being extracted from them, black, brown, Asian, and, and so forth. and And sometimes the way I hear the conversation is almost it's almost as if that we have with extraction from workers of color, and that's the the sole source of the wealth. Right. I think that's a bit incomplete to be honest, man. Yeah, no
0: no no, that's I I mean I think that there's there's with all of these terms and even how we talk about about the work, I think that there's some oversimplification that that happens to just make it a little bit more germane and you know, obviously Amazon's workforce, even their warehouse workers aren't entirely black folks. They didn't, you know. That would that would be major news. We would we you know, that that would be a problem if their whole whole workforce who's working in the warehouses with all black people. Um, so there's some, yeah, there's some, there's some shorthanding that I think if we're, if we're true to, you know, Marxist definitions of surplus value or what Cedric Robinson said, and um, I'm sure that they would, they would have some quibbles, quibbles with it too. Um, but I do think it's a helpful frame to think about, um, you know, uh, th- this, this isn't a, this this isn't an inefficiency, right? This isn't an, a market inefficiency. This is actually a strategic choice that's being made by a set of actors, um, and that's really where, where we where we sort of you know, that's where that's where I think we come down on it.
1: Yeah. Yeah, jumping back to Amazon for a second. You no, know, a lot of the broader world is looking at Amazon and this battle around unionization and, and Bessemer. Why is it important for activists and advocates and organizers? who are watching this campaign to to have a sense of this notion of racial capitalism and with extraction being how they see it versus simply doing right by some poor workers sort of thing.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that's a really good question. I mean, I think, you know, to, to, to add to your question a little bit before I answer it, like I, I think that, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm hopeful about the, the, um, the result in the Bessemer election, but, but I also you know, I I I know that if for some reason there's a loss and they are not able to um, to unionize, that that's 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 not really the end, right? Like the 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 point of this wasn't um, the the entirety of of the push around the Amazon is not just to unionize their warehouses one by one by one. I think a more important thing really inside of inside of the Bessemer fight is that. Um, you know, this is, a, this is a company that they really don't have, they don't rack up a lot of losses generally. <laughs> like, this is the most powerful company, arguably, in the entire country. Um, and for the most part, what they say goes. Um, I mean, we saw this when they decided to expand their HQ2, and they, you know, they they did take a loss in New York, but I think what people missed in that fight is they went all around the country city to city. They got cities to sign these agreements where the cities gave all of their data over to the company. They were jumping over themselves to give them different municipal finance deals and tax cuts and um, and Amazon's going to take advantage of all of those things that they learned during that during that process, right? Like so that, this isn't a company that 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 takes a lot of losses. It would be a real, um, you know, blowing up the Death Star moment for um, not only for them to, you know, allow unionization in a part of their shot, but to do it, um, you know, in a place where, uh, where in Alabama, where, um, you know, that is sort of the, the, one of the main front lines of right to work. Um, and we see that with the auto industry in Alabama and, um, and, and big companies like, like, uh, like Amazon, Um, And then it's, you know, it goes without saying, because this is Alabama, like these are, these are Southern black folks. These are folks that, that traditional labor organizations um, in recent years, because of right to work and lots of other things have not been able to make the type of, um, have not been able to make the type of gains and have been losing union membership. And um, it's been a real struggle to organize in those places. So, so this is just important for so many reasons. Um. Um, but like I said, it's not the, it's not the end of the fight, no matter which way it goes, really.
1: You know, a couple of things I, I, um, when I think about the power of be it Amazon or, or Walmart or those companies, I think back to what I'm assuming is a sense of power that people felt that Ford and GM and you still had back in the day, and we'd love to kind of peruse the Twitter of the day, because it'd be a newspaper, right? The radio shows, right, right. and, and see how, how that kind of battle unfolded in terms of people expanding the possibilities of success seems was doable. It's a fascinating book that talked about kind of the battle inside of a black Detroit, where you are around the question of Ford. Yeah. How Henry Ford basically, I mean, in a crude, crude, a nuanced term the way, bought off black preachers by giving yeah. jobs to their, their newly migrant um, parishioners, parishioners and a battle over, should the black community lean toward Henry Ford or lean toward the, the, the unionization campaigns themselves? So it some, it's a similar process. And what I also think about is, is how do you, it's called the, the justification of the South unfold, mm-hmm. and so how do you kind of see what happened in Georgia happen in Florida and and in Alabama and so forth? And in yeah. some ways, this could be part of that process. I think.
0: I totally. I mean, I totally agree. I think it's uh, that you know all this timing of everything is not coincidental. Like I think that there is is political, um, lots more political activity and national attention being put towards political activity that's been there for a long time too. I think the other reason that I, th- I think of, uh, you know, this, this, just the union winning there is not the end is, you know, there've, there've been some really hard fought union battles that, you know, 20, 30, 40 years later, um, the union doesn't have the same vigor, right? The union isn't fighting as hard for their workers as they were. They're a little bit cozier to the company um, and I, I, you know, again, would love to go back and 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 also look at the tweets of the day to see the difference between you know some some a uh, uh, a shop like UAW and how they talked about the company, um, you know, decades and decades ago, and how they talk about them now, and compare those two things side side by side because they do have a different relationship with Ford and GM than they did when they were you know when they were going up against Edsel Ford and and the rest of that family, so. Yeah um and that that's not you know there's a uh that's something to worry about especially when the company that you're organizing is a really 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 powerful actor like the auto industry was and like amazon is so you know the fight continues
1: yeah yeah i want to shift a bit from um amazon per se and the the broader issue kind of the black freedom struggle and over the last five years or so, there's been more and more talk about the term racial capitalism has been used more and more in looking at systemic issues facing black workers and stuff. What do you think of some of the implications of that lens of racial capitalism and looking at the, the black freedom struggle? I mean, it could be in terms of organizing or in, in narrative projection or building coalition to win. What do you think are, is it an advantage of that lens in going forward?
0: Yeah, it's a really good question. I think one main thing is that is it causes a look back into history that's really important. So you know, I've I've been in lots of organizing spaces where I've kind of seen the shift from talking about just systemic racism or capitalism to talking about racial capitalism, and one of the things that will usually come up is is slavery, <laughs> you know, um, and. You know, you might think of that as like, oh, God, like we're, we're just talking about slavery every single time that we organize. But it actually is, I think, really important, especially for newer people who are being activated to realize, A, how recent some of those struggles were, and then B, the connection between what we're dealing with right now and the way that the slave trade operated um, and that slavery operated in, in the U.S., Um I, I I think that's one thing. The other is like, you know, I, I, I also think that there, there has sometimes been this, this disconnection between the things that are racist, you know, sort of structurally racist, like police and like bad schools and like whatever, and then capitalism on the other side. And then like, that's the worker stuff. That's the, you charge too much money for this stuff. And part of the, the um, you know, what I've, what I've seen is, I, I don't know if this was really the intention of the creation of the term, but I've seen a linking of those two things a lot more when people are using the framework of racial capitalism. So, you know, you're intentionally taught, of course, you're talking about things like police brutality. You're talking about, uh, you know, how schools are funded, et cetera. But then you're also talking about, you know, the grind and, um, you know, being close to starvation and lack of health care and all the other things that individuals have to deal with. You're not kind of splitting folks from their work and their other life um, because, you know, we, especially black folks, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm just black all the time. I'm not black at work and then get to, you know, walk home and not be black. So yeah, I, th- I think a, that as a, as a narrative device, it's done a lot more of that in, in movement spaces, I would say.
1: Now, I think about, about the implications around today's organizing. Yeah, like I think you're right, that, that, that what happens a lot is for bringing a longer view, and historical lens to the conversation, which is equally, equally important, to know that we aren't kind of brand-new, top-flight, brand, discover new stuff, right? Uh-huh. There was a guy named Du Bois, those kind of people, they existed, by the way. But I think also it's a question to say, how do you apply it today? And I think about the question of, of how do you organize? And the value up or down on actual workplace organizing. Yeah, that, yeah. That that to the extent that we have um, I call it uh, a lens of purely structural racism, divorced from capitalism, then sometimes that it might downplay the importance of actual workplace organizing. Or if you talk about kind of a narrow view of, of structural racism, you can get stuck in what I'll call a narrow disparities analysis. That's right. And 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 so for instance, around housing stuff. If we can get more black folks to own homes, we've done a good deed. And clearly important, yeah, you know, I got I own a house. I'm not going to be hypocritical at all, by the way. But but the notion that the housing challenges are a function of how our political economy operates is an important thing to understand, and not just a byproduct of some bad white folks sort of thing.
0: I think that that's, yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, and you know, part of the, re- we're, we, we are both on the board of the Black Worker Center although you're abandoning us soon um, uh, but part of the reason that I'm on that board is because you know I I look back at history and I see you know the importance of what uh you know what we what we primarily are started as workplace organizing as spaces for black folks to actually talk about lots of other issues that were affecting them and they did let the lines bleed over, right? Like there was like, you know, how, how are we being treated as sleeping car porters? And also, how are we going to, as a people, you know, change voting rights? And those things were, those were, those were conversations happening at the same meeting. And I think that that's, that's really important, you know, for better or worse right now, a lot of our time is spent in workplaces. A lot of the, that's the, that's the, political organization that people are most likely to be engaged in um, or the organization rather so making that political i think is great (laughs) and and, you know being encouraged to do that with with organizing under racial capitalism is good
1: and so the idea of being in a workplace that is a pre-pandemic view by the way And so the question is, post-pandemic, what's the view? But that'd be another another podcast. No, no, no. no, We're still in
0: workplaces. We're just we're just virtual. We're we're just virtual. Our workplace is Zoom now.
1: (laughs) It's like a a postmodern view of workplaces, but whatever. Okay. Okay. Um, One last thing, if I move on to some other stuff, I think it's important around the question of allies and race and capitalism to talk about going beyond the binary black white view of race in America. Yeah. We see the spate of anti-Asian violence, and in a lot of ways it's hard to fully absorb that because, in many ways, our kind of our, our language doesn't fully allow for that. You know, and I think to the extent that we can see that notion of extraction happening to all workers and then impacting a variety of institutions, not just a black thing, then it allows us able to, to talk about how are other peoples facing racial capitalism, and it may be different from black folks. They're not making white, by the way. I mean, right. they ain't black folks. Right. I think that, that means another advantage of having kind of this view of racial capitalism and a broader view that we can expand the the, the look at how race impacts in America.
0: I think that that's right. I mean, I th- I think that the danger, of course, is if you if you sort of collapse it to you know, okay, like the way people of color experience the world is this, and you're sort of mashing together. Black folks, folks who identify just as Latino, folks who are Asian, folks who, you know, everyone into one category. And the truth is, you know, we do experience things a lot, a lot differently. And, you know, skin color and history has a lot to do with that. Um, So, yeah, I mean, I I think you're absolutely right, though. Like looking at looking at how the exploitation and, and racism works across different race across different non-white races is really important.
1: Yeah. About, what, what was it, four or five years ago, man, you started a group called Action Center on Race in the Economy? Yep. Is the acronym ACRE? That's not, that's the actual acronym?
0: It is, it is. Okay,
1: yeah. it's part of 40 acres, that, 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 that's the spirit, by the way? I,
0: I Listen, I, I won't say that that didn't come up in the in the brainstorming meetings. <laughs> but,
1: well, just say you wanna function on General Sherman, Is General Spike Lee, okay, that, that did it, all right. But, but but tell us more about by Acre and what you do and those sort of things. Man, when did when you start exactly, and why did you start it?
0: Yeah. So um, yeah. So I I co-founded Acre with uh, my colleague Sa- Saket Bhati, and you know we really this grew out of work that we had been doing for a really long time. Um, you know, I, I I the type of organizing that I mostly work on is is corporate campaigning um, and taking on the power of finance and and um, you know increasingly so the tech industry. Um, and I think one thing that, that we had noticed doing some of that work is that we, you know, we weren't really landing um, how this, this notion of racial capitalism, how race in general and systemic racism fit into those campaigns. So, you know, you brought up earlier sort of the, you know, the, the um, disparity and or disparate impact way of looking at things. And I think that that's a frame that even still so we're, we're kind of stuck in. Um, where folks will say, you know, here's a problem, and da, da 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 and it disproportionately impacts people of color or something like that. Um, and we really wanted to, you know, have an organization that had a framework where we could talk about some of the intentionality, as I was saying before, about why these things are happening to particular groups, um, and really organize with that kind of, and campaign with, with that analysis really really forward um so as you know as we were starting the organization we you know in the planning thought of okay well what 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 do folks actually need to do that what do folks need to if we were going to shift our campaigns around Blackstone around Wells Fargo around you know all these these around Amazon around other companies like that if we were to shift these campaigns and make them more race forward to incorporate racial capitalism in a better way. What do we need? Well, one, we need some campaign strategy. We need to like actually be able to help folks think through what what that would actually be and how you actually do that. Two is we need research. Like we can say all we want that things are intentional or that, you know, Amazon's only going to XYZ places and if we can't actually point to it, then our arguments don't go very far off of Twitter, let's say. <laughs> Um, and then three, we do actually need a megaphone. We need to be able to highlight things that folks are doing that are really, really pushing back against, um, you know, some of the, the titans that are holding up racial capitalism. Um, so that's what we, we sought out to build. And we started, it was just uh, me, Saka, and a research director. And, um, you know, now we, we have a few more staff that um, are kind of split between different departments. Some are researchers, some are campaigners and some are in the um, in the messaging and comms work and helping organizations that are on the ground um, with campaigns that they're running and making sure that we're, you know, we're resourcing folks to do really great campaigns that that uh, that take on those power holders.
1: So let me run back what I thought I heard and clearly tell me how, how, how well I captured it or not. So some of your work is simply providing technical assistance. That group A is in Chicago rolling through and you might be able to bring some assistance either on research or comms or strategy stuff. But also you do some sort of research independent of that as well. Does that kind of capture some stuff?
0: Yeah, I mean we like to think of it as a little bit deeper than than TA just because we, you know, we are not like fee for service and um, you know, we we like to get our hands dirty a little bit too. So Usually, when we're involved in some kind of campaign, like we are, we're coming to the meetings where, um, you know, we're just another organization at the at the table. Um, so it's a little bit different than the, you know, like folks that you just, hey, I need a, uh, I need to a spreadsheet that has all the addresses of blah 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 blah. Like it's a little bit deeper than that, um, and uh, and then yeah, the the other stuff that is research that we do independently it's usually, you know, things that we've, that we've noticed, um, that, uh, help to add to the understanding of how, uh, racial capitalism moves in this country, or is a new potential campaign area that, that we've identified that, you know, we just want to sort of add to the understanding of it and someone might pick it up and, or someone might not, um, you know, it's, it's, uh, we, I, I'm a real big proponent of, um, in this period of time, experimentation and organizing and campaigning and just, you know, seeing what works and seeing what doesn't. And some of our research is that for sure.
1: That sounds cool. So, so do any, any particular focus on Amazon in particular or just...
0: Yeah, you know, Am- Amazon. Amazon pops up as a target pretty often. I mean, we, we, you know, we are in our focus on tech and, you know, with a sort of long-term vision of democratizing tech and... Um, in the country and Amazon sort of being the, the key tech company in the country, they come, they come up a lot there. And then we also do a lot of work on public budgets and, you know, municipal finance. Amazon is like I said, there, you know, there's, there's some, some version of Amazon in every state, um, in the country. So, you know, you'll, you'll, you'll dig a little deeper and find that they've got some tax write off in your city or locale and, you, know, you might not even see them there, but they, you know, they they were able to siphon some some money out. Um, and then we also are a, a, a co-founder of this coalition called Athena, which um, is the coalition that is uh, that that takes on Amazon across lots of different issue areas, and you know, united for respect and partnership for working families, and um, some other organizations are involved in that. With and one thing I thought
1: about is your talking because you said a couple of times um, during this conversation. About about the issue of, of data and surveillance, yeah. And what's interesting about these different kind of say, I'll call it tentacles on the octopus of Amazon, that it, it it brings forth by by its very nature a sense of broadening political education. Yeah, yeah. You know, and that, that's really important in some ways.
0: I think that's absolutely right. Yeah, I think I think that there's it's broadening political education and 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 how um, how corporations can kind of have their hands in multiple things and then it's sort of like a 21st century understanding of what monopoly is too. You know, Mm -hmm. like, I think if, if you, if you think, if you ask sort of a random person to, you know, maybe 30 plus person to name some, some monopolies of the past, you know, the, the types of things that'll come up are telephone companies or, um, yeah, you know, oil companies or, um, things like that. And, Amazon really is this it's, it's it doesn't really fit that that model, right? Like they're not actually producing this good that they are the only ones who produce and it gets kind of sold out. Um, and they sort of own all the all the industries there. They're more like a monopoly of monopolies. So they themselves are in web servicing, like the, the, what we're doing right now over the internet likely wouldn't work without their web servicing uh, software. Um, your Zoom wouldn't work, you know, most of the federal government's websites wouldn't work without that. They also then scoop up little companies that they, you know, they, they notice are selling really well. So, you know, just in the past few years, Zappos and uh, Pill and Whole Foods and all of those companies have been bought up. Um, and you could call all of those companies some monopoly in their own right before they were, they were purchased. Um, and then they also produce some of their own, so it's kind of you know it's it's really it's really broad. It's really um, not our traditional understanding of how monopoly works, and I think it's really important for folks to see and understand that because they also are not the only ones, um, and there there are other corporations that act similarly.
1: No, this is cool. Um, this is why I enjoy these these discussions. I, I kind of enjoy like learning and listening and be kind of being creative intellectually. Because you were talking, I was thinking about kind of the old school in econ looking at monopolies being either vertical or horizontal. Yeah. And vertical means that simply yeah. every step along the process, I got you. Horizontal mean I got every firm doing the thing. And people talk about conglomerates and being a third type. But Amazon is a strange beast because right. it's clearly not vertical in the old school. Um, it can't be horizontal because only one out there, right? right? But it's not simply a disconnected set of firms inside the, glom- the agglomeration. Right. The it's ones not, that are kind of tied together. It's a fascinating it's, way to look at it.
0: Right. Yeah, it's not It's not Samsung. It's not, you know, all these companies that are, okay, you make washing machines and you make stereos, but like those things are kind of separate lines and those are two big companies inside of, you know, it's not that. It's kind of a vertical, horizontal conglomerate yeah. monopoly of monopolies, you know?
1: Yeah, Yeah. I thought of kind of amoeba type thing, you know? Right. yeah. And one important thing too is that the way that, you think about the way that a Samsung is involved in our lives. You know, we buy Samsung products, far different from Amazon. That's right. We kind of we kind of breathe Amazon basically in a lot of ways. You know, which is different from how we interface with Ford or GM or Samsung or, or those those kind of groups.
0: Yeah, and I think that that's that's that is newer. Um, you know, some of that is just the advent of the internet that makes those kinds of things newer, where like they own web servicing, which is now how all websites work. Um, and some of it is also government, um, you know. Let's call it acquiescence at the at the best. So, you know, we could we could have stopped Amazon. Lots of places along the way. We could, um, but instead of stopping them, you know, our government just contracts with them. Actually, they're like, oh, you guys have the web servicing. We'll just buy all that, or you have, uh, you know, a good way of, of surveilling people with uh, doorbell cameras. We'll just buy all of that, <laughs> or we'll just buy that service from you, you know. Um, yeah.
1: So I want you to know that Jeff Bezos just texted me. He says that we should stop bashing him. So I want to move on beyond yeah. Jeff. My friend Jeff says lighten up a little right. bit, okay? Right. I've also seen your website the whole idea of bargaining for the common good. And I think a lot about the whole teacher struggle to me are phenomenal. So so you've been deeply involved in the whole idea of bargaining for the common good. Can you tell us a bit more about that?
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, really, the notion of bargaining for the common good is that, um, you know, Bargaining, whether we think of it as traditional union bargaining or the bargaining that's done in community organizations once you get to your target, is really like some of the most powerful, one of the most powerful organizing tools that you have, like getting to the table and actually, um, you know, making your opponent give up something um, and setting the terms of how your relationship is going to move forward. So and for for I think for for most folks um, who are connected to unions, their experience of the bargaining process might be entirely internal and about wages and benefits, which is actually really really great. Like it's great that unions advocate for their members to have good wages and good and good benefits. Um, But you know there are um, in the same way I said I I'm I'm black twenty four seven. You know there are things that that. Span outside of um, a worker at work's life um, that affect them as a community member, affects their family, affects their neighbors, etc. So the the you know the general concept is how do we bring those types of things and those people to the bargaining table so that we're not winning at the expense of something else. Um, you know, I think a really great example of there's lots of great examples. One great example of this is um, the Los Angeles teacher strike that just happened, where, you know, there were there were wage and benefits things there, but if you look deeper into the the reasons that they were on strike, it was also you know the the um, municipality uh, contract with ICE. It was also. Um, you know, uh, recess time and um, uh, wraparound services for kids, and um, you know, I think the more that we can do that, the more um, you get community buy-in for uh, for actual um, you know labor organizer labor organizing work. Um, so if you know, if I know that they're bringing to the table things that. Affect me, even though I'm not a teacher, I'm way more likely to support their strike. I'm way more likely to support all of the work that, that they're doing. Um, and, you know, especially for public sector unions, this is the chance where you actually have the government on the line. They're at the table. They actually can, are deciding about their budget right there, sitting with whoever is bargaining right there. Um, so being able to really flex that power with community organizations and the community at large a little bit better, I think, is um is the direction that we're we're trying to through the BCG network trying to pull um, community orgs and labor orgs into?
1: No, you, you said a couple of times that you're black twenty four seven, and that was surprising. By the way, I didn't I didn't know that. Yeah, I, I've I've been enlightened. By the way, that that That's insight.
0: Good. That's good. You know, you, yeah. If you've only seen me during work days, so you didn't you didn't know for sure. But yeah, yeah, no, yeah. after we sign off, I'll still be black.
1: <laughs> okay, good to know that. But but what it does imply, though, is that. The way we talk about laboring community is false, because if you're black twenty four seven, yo, you black twenty four seven, right? You labor in community. You right. hold. You embody that. And oftentimes, uh, the way we organize belies that reality. And to me, the the the, the, the a way that you could probably um, advance the idea of bargaining for common good is to start with that reality that I'm black twenty four seven. And so it's not like their potholes being filled. It's my potholes being filled, right? And, and so this issues around Ice and those sort of things aren't like foreign issues; they're my issues. It's simply the other part of my issues, sort of thing.
0: Yeah, I think that's exact. I mean, that's exactly right. Like we, I remember during the foreclosure crisis, um, doing some work with teachers in St. Paul, where um, they really amazingly brought issues about uh, foreclosure to the bargaining table, and you know, got got into their contract that the city won't use any banking services of banks that foreclose on people during the school year. And this wasn't like a foreign thing to anyone in the community, right? Like there were teachers being foreclosed on. There were teachers trying to teach kids whose families were being foreclosed on, which, I mean, if you could only imagine what that is like. They were having a really rough time doing it. They were that was, That's everybody. That's not just a, a school thing, even though it was affecting schools. So, you know, the more I feel like we can break down these silos... Um, I think it goes back to what we were saying about just the nature of how our economy works right like everyone the working class is exploited so you know we we, we share that the more we can break down the silos of it i think the better
1: it seems that sometimes sometimes i hear you talk and think about your work i know a little bit before our conversations that in some ways it seems to acre is trying to fuse this question of organizing around racial oppression and organizing around economic exploitation they're not really separate Things. So There's simply one of the same. It's really super important. Yeah. Um, so, in preparation, I do prep a little bit, by the way. I, I look at your website and um, it said one thing you said is that we believe that race and class are intrinsically linked and that it's not possible to fix the structural problems of our economy in a race neutral way. And yeah. I mean, that you've been saying for the last, what, 15, 20, 30 minutes, right? Right. So, I, I fully get that. Does it work the other way as well? That you we really can't talk about, we really can't fix structural racism without talking about our economy.
0: Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think if you if you try to do that, what you end up with is, um, uh, you know, we just have to uh, uh, get more qualified home qualified uh, homeowners with good credit scores into better houses, right? Like, you're not if you're not thinking about all of uh, if you're not thinking about class exploitation, you end up with answers that allow a certain number of people into the good club and then they still have bad people in the bad club, right? They still have us with the, with the, uh, you know, 500 credit scores (laughs) sitting on the outside. Um, yeah, I think it works both ways. Like they're like inextricably linked means inextricably linked. Like you can't, you can't really talk about one without the other. And I, I honestly think that often in, Black movement space. I feel like class is being left behind in a way that that can be damaging, um, and um, you know, I, I I think there are a group of us who are constantly bringing bringing up class issues inside of our our movement um, and thinking about how solutions can can make sure that we're recognizing class too. So, absolutely.
1: Any thoughts on why that happens? I thought you were I thought you were around woke black folks. What's wrong with you? <laughs> <laughs> but seriously, any thoughts on why they have them out? Yeah, I mean, I th- I think
0: it it really is to um I think it's it, it it likely has to do with how people were radicalized into into black organizing space. Um so I mean for me, you know, one of the ways that I that I got into some of the, you know, movement for black lives work was after the acquittal of George Zimmerman. And I was living in the Bay Area and you know, that is when sort of BLM stuff started popping off and, um, you know, it's not like I hadn't done any work around policing and incarceration or, or other structural, structurally racist things, but that really gave me a huge, huge boost. And I mean, if you remember that gave hundreds of thousands of people, a huge, huge boost. Right. So if you're, if that's how you came in, um, that's kind of the, that's the primary thing. Right. And there's, um, so you're, you're, you're just thinking about uh, racist actors and maybe thinking about, okay, there's a structurally racist system that can, has the potential to create an infinite number of racist actors, right? But you're not necessarily thinking about, um, about class disparities. You're not necessarily thinking about how race and class are linked together in the, in the U.S. Um, so I think that it has a lot to do with how people come into the movement.
1: I agree. I think about my origin stories back in, in, the, in the dark ages. You know that <laughs> folk do, do come of age in certain concrete ages, right? But I think it's important to talk about those concrete ages becoming the movement. That that that, clearly conceptually, we could talk about. You know the legal and extra legal lynching of black folks in a way that looks at race and class. Yeah. Or we can talk about the actual lynching of Black folks in a way that has a narrow way of look at it. So I think that that you're right is how people come into this to the space, but also what is a space to come into itself?
0: Yeah, I think that's a really good that, that's a really good point. Yeah, and I th- I think that there's um yeah I mean I'm, i mean I don't know if there's a a, a, a a you know residence to take on capitalism to like actually name that word in America. Um, which is, you know, that, 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 that creates a different kind of conversation when you're saying, I want to abolish capitalism. <laughs> People are like, whoa. Ooh,
1: whoa, whoa, whoa. I can't uh, believe I, I do that.
0: Right, exactly. Like, whoa, wait, does that mean I can't have sneakers? Whoa, does that mean I, you know. Um, and it doesn't mean those things, but it creates a different type of conversation. And I think it's up to us, the folks who really believe that they're inextricably linked to really think about how do we, how do, how do we make that the type of mess, how, how do we incorporate that into the messaging that is like, you know, sweeping everyone up in these movement moments that, you know, this is also because of capitalism. <laughs> this this also exists because of that, so.
1: Maurice, this is super cool what you're saying, but I have a question. It's a nice slogan about capitalism, at least some people's nice slogan, by the way, um, but in terms of concrete structural changes, what are you looking at?
0: Yeah. Um, I mean, I think that there's, there's a question of, of term whenever I, whenever I'm asked this question, I think of uh, the question of term because, you know, the structural change really is the abolition of, of capitalism, you know? Um, uh, but on a, on a shorter term, like I, I, I think that, um, you know, we often kid ourselves when we talk about how I, I'm, 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 using we to mean folks who believe in abolition of capitalism, um, as being the path forward we sometimes kid ourselves in thinking that that's going to be an, an easy thing that is going to be one day it, it is abolished and everything will be great and we will have one. And, you know, we're all dancing around in, in the kumbaya circle. Um, but really, you know, the death of these types of systems takes, um, takes a really long time. And I think that, that, uh, capitalism has been dying for a while, so the ways that we sort of push this forward, the structural changes that, that we do to push it forward are things that um, continue to weaken the hinges um, so that, you know, eventually some generation is going to come along. Maybe it's my kid's generation. Maybe it's my generation. Who knows? Um, and bust down the door, and it's uh, it's all gonna fall apart. In the meantime, I think like you know, I could I could see a real change in um, in how we actually do some of the core things that uh, financialized um, uh, capitalism uh, is doing now differently. So moving away from you know short termism that uh, private equity and hedge funds and big financial firms really. Um, uh really traffic in and really control the economy to more cooperative models um that you know that themselves are not sort of the you know you you can't exist outside of capitalism even if you're in an awesome co-op but you know it's really great to both to to show that those things um, have value to to individuals and um uh, and to practice those things as as a people, you know, um to practice how we live in a way that is not based on short-termism and and um, endless consumption and endless growth. Um, so, yeah, I mean, you know less hedge continuing to take on corporations, less hedge funds and financial firms, and more uh, more focus on care, economy and more co-ops and things like that, I think are things that that are weakening the hinges of capitalism.
1: And as you're talking i thought of a couple of things um one of the slogan we had back in the day was that that a revolution is not a dinner party
0: uh-huh. <laughs> you know
1: uh-huh. it's important to kind of keep that in mind but, but also the idea that the seeds of the future lie in the present yeah and so i, I wonder if the whole idea of a hinge metaphor is a, is a good one could almost applies a radical rupture in things and i'm not sure we have those kind of radical ruptures the way that phrase normally is taken you know um it might be a breakthrough where all of a sudden you know i'm trying to train for my marathon all of a sudden after a month i can't see a breakthrough yeah the step might be a radical breakthrough radical rupture of my old capacity but it's a function of the month of training
0: that's right that's and right so, yeah. so the
1: same thing in terms of of the change you're talking about it won't be simply we blew the hinges off the door and now we're in heaven right but it's gonna be something much more messy And complicated than that yeah a lot of like two steps forward one step back two steps forward three steps back those sort of things Um,
0: yeah yeah maybe we blew the hinges off and then we get into the house and it's an absolute mess (laughs) and we got a lot of we got a lot of work to do we got to redo the roof we got to redo the plumbing we got you know we got to do a lot of stuff capitalism really screwed this house up
1: (laughs) that's for sure man i want to begin to land this airplane this interview man and it has some closing questions that aren't like two second questions by the way yeah you talked about how you kind of came into the movement well, one phase when we came into around the, the whole George Zimmerman verdict, but you imply you're active before then. So if we talk about kind of a a, a movement aha moment, what would it have been for you? What got you to be going on this pathway, man?
0: Yeah, I think, um, you know, I was, I was, I was always sort of like interested in political work and activism and stuff like that. I think the the, the real aha moment though, was probably the Iraq war. Um, like the beginning of the Iraq war where um, you know I just remember thinking seeing you know millions of people out in the streets like well there's no way that we can that we can actually move forward with this war if there are this many people who are against it and then seeing it happen anyway I think just really changed my idea of what needs what what needs to happen in order to stop Empire and stop power from um, from doing something that, you know, um, and that was a real, I, I think about that all of the time, the, the like, you know, day when we actually started attacking Iraq is like a, uh, yeah, it was just a huge awakening for me. I'm like, we, we actually need to be, we need, we need not activists. We need organizers, right? Like we need people who are actually building something, not just who are going to like, you know, come out to something one day in DC. So yeah, that was that was one of my that was probably my main aha moment.
1: And what did you do given that when you, when you said aha, what did you do next because of that?
0: Oh, because of that, I that that changed a lot of things. So I, um, you know, I, I I focused most of my uh, time in college on organizing. Um, And my grades from college reflect that. I just like, you know, kind of stopped doing any work that was not connected to organizing in some way. Um, You know, I, I decided that that is for better or worse what I wanted to do with my life. So I, you know, moved with absolutely no job and no money to Oakland because I heard some story of some people doing cool organization building out there. Um, yeah, it was a lot. I did, a, I did, a, I did a lot differently because of
1: that. So you could have been the second, uh, I'd say the third <laughs> black president, right? Because um, Kamala may be our second one. So you could have been the third black president. You, you went off, you went off the, the road. You fell off the wagon, in other words. I know.
0: I know. Although, whenever you know, my 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 mom still tells people that I'm a community organizer, and the the most often response she gets is like, "Oh, like Barack Obama," and it's right. like. So- but it's not like Barack Obama.
1: So you might be number three, but Who knows? Um, no,
0: no, no, no. Don't. I don't have to worry about that at all. Don't worry.
1: Um, how you define black freedom, man? How you define black, black freedom?
0: freedom? Yeah, I define black freedom as you know, black people get to do determine to what they want to do. So um, you know, there aren't things that are that are pre-baked for us. We really get to set our own destinies. Um, so, and that might mean for some people, you know, you you uh, just get to kick your feet up and do nothing. That might mean for other people, you know, you get to um, live on your farm by yourself. Um, but really, it's about you know being able to determine that for for yourself and not having a system constantly tell you what you can and can't do.
1: So cool, 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 cool. cool. Um, I buy books like I. Eat peanut butter and jelly, by the way, a lot. Mm. Okay, and what books are you reading, man?
0: Oh, um, I feel like I'm 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 reading too many books right now. Um, uh, so the main one that I'm I, my my main book right now, I usually have two or three going. <laughs> my main one is The Code of Capital. Um, the author's name is escaping me at the moment. Uh, Pistor. Pistor. Um, what's, it, what's it about? So this is about how basically the rules of uh, of that give corporations um, and uh, other companies power were coded into law. So, uh-huh. you know, we think of like, uh, you know, insidious practices of corporations like dodging taxes or using shell companies to hide different, um, you know, financial things and, um, or setting themselves up in Delaware, or setting themselves up in the Cayman Islands to hide profits. And um, yeah, it's just really interesting look at, at how all of those things became okay to do and coded into the legal system starting from, you know, hundreds of years ago. So um, I've enjoyed it so far.
1: Anything else in particular reading? that? Is that the main thing that's really kind of driving on
0: That's the main thing. You know, I am I have my other sort of, like, nerdy reading going on, so... My wait, ner- wait, so
1: co- wait, the Code of Capital wasn't nerdy? Wait a second, man. Wait a second. <laughs> <laughs> Make sure we're clear. No, that was a nerdy reading. Okay, no, wait a second. That,
0: that one's, like, relatively popular, <laughs> I think. Like, I'm, I'm reading, like, more, you know, uh, modern monetary theory stuff, and that, like, you know, causes everyone's eyes to glaze over. Except for mine, I guess, so... Yes.
1: Yeah, Well, let me tell you, man. I know, you know you're expecting father. At a certain point, you will no longer be reading MMT, okay? <laughs> MTO, right?
0: <laughs> I, can, I can read it in the tone of a children's book, I'm sure, and it would make <laughs> no difference.
1: <laughs> but how about music, man? Any music keep you inspired, keep, keep you motivated, man?
0: You know, I've, I went back to um, an album that came out years ago this week um, uh, by the artist No Name. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with her amazing rapper, um, uh, and you know, organizer and activist herself. Um, there's an old album called Telephone that came out in 2016, and that's what I've been listening to all week. I'd recommend to anybody.
1: I thought you said old, by the way. But ignoring that for a second, you said no name. No name is, is her name. No name.
0: Yep. Yep. And no name. And,
1: and, and the, the title's what again?
0: Telephone. telephone.
1: Telephone sounds cool, man. Yeah.
0: yeah. And
1: this has been great, Maurice. You know, we all, we all we're on the same board together until I resign on January one. And it's been good hanging out but we haven't had a long sort of time of talk of this has been cool man i know
0: yeah it's been a, it's been a minute so yeah i, I really appreciate it and I, I i'm i really love this project of yours and um really just appreciate you as a as a mentor and thought, thought partner too i know that uh we joke around a lot but i just want you to you to hear that before before your retirement and you forget about all of us and you're just golfing somewhere you know whatever you're gonna do
1: appreciate it, man, okay? So you be well, man. Take care, okay?
0: All right. Thanks, Leslie.
1: I really enjoyed talking with Maurice. One of the many insights I learned during our conversation was the notion that the activism of people new to social change reflects how they came into the movement. And this initial context, their portal into the movement, is shaped by people, organizations, and narratives. It is incumbent upon us to develop a space that is both welcoming and projects a clear and accurate sense of the challenges and opportunities before us. Without this clarity and accuracy, for instance, saying that more black police will end the state of black murders by the police, or more black businesses will radically alter the quality of jobs held by black workers, weakens our movement. Thanks for joining me this week on Black Work Talk. I hope this podcast can grow to become part of the network of our movement for change. We need your help as we build the Black Work Talk community. Please subscribe to the podcast, wherever you find your podcast, and go to Patreon to become a sustainer. And beyond the financial support, I would love to hear from you. What do you think about the show? Any suggestions for future guests or future topics to explore, please let me know. Reach out to me at Stephen at blackworktalk.com, and I promise to get back to you. Until the next episode, stay safe and be well.